Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Jono. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing over there? I am fabulous. I see you're on the couch, so the dogs will not be bothering you. Well, theoretically, which means, of course, in theory. Uh, that's, uh, that's the plan anyway. There's three of them. We were outside in the cold and now we're inside. And you generally, if I sit here quietly, they will comply. We'll see if that happens. Well, the only thing we're going to have to worry about now is the, uh, is the clock that dings every 15 minutes. Which I normally am able to edit out. Listeners don't realize how often the clock is edited out, how often your dogs are edited out, how often my dogs are edited out. It'd be a much longer podcast. So to keep it at a reasonable length, we are in season four. We are in episode three. Uh, we are just sailing on. Have a great time. We have a wonderful interview today uh, with the charming and funny Rachel Wax. Yeah, she is really both charming and funny. And in listening to the interview for a second time, I am so hot to get in the car or get on a plane and go to New York to see Speakeasy. I can hardly finish this podcast. I want to go. Okay. Well, we got to finish it. So hold on okay. tight. All right. I, I, I almost stood up, but then no. the dogs go crazy. So we don't want that. We no. don't want that. No, Rachel but, was really charming and funny. I first saw her on uh, Fool Us and made a note that we had to talk to her. She just was, like I say, charming and funny, and it was a great routine. And I thought, oh, this is a perfect up and comer that we need to talk to. Absolutely. And you were right on all counts, as you generally are. Now, going into this interview, I remember the first thing we had to get straight was just exactly how many magicians that we have talked to in the past who got into magic via their fathers. Okay, Rachel, so jumping right in, I understand that you learned magic from your father. Now, Jim, let's think back to all the magicians we've talked to. I know Jeff Altman learned magic from his father. I'm trying to think, is there anybody else we've had on who oh learned magic from their father. And in the case of Jeff, he learned magic and then became an impressionist and a comedian and didn't go back to magic until he retired. So I can't think of anybody else who... Oh, 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 oh yeah, uh, but John, uh, the charming uh, woman in France that we talked to. Well, yes. Yes, yeah. Alexandre de Vivier. Well, duh, duh, I probably should have got that one right away. That's, what we got. That's why it's good that we're... You know, two and not just one. Yeah. Yes, because I've met her father. I should know that. Yeah. Anyway, do you remember the very first magic trick you ever saw? So I don't remember the first, but I will tell you the moment I realized I wanted to do it was we were at a wedding in El Salvador and it was like our family flew out there. And my everybody was absolutely wasted. Everybody was sweating through their clothes. Like it was the hottest, most humid experience of our lives. And my dad was just was just slaughtering with magic. Like he people were hysterical. They were letting loose. They were having the time of their lives. And he was just casually doing card tricks for them. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to bring the life of the party. And a lot of my magic character is modeled off of him. And so my dad and I are, it's adorable. We have matching magic tattoos, which my mother is so unhappy about. And what does the tattoo uh, uh, take? What form does it take? Uh, it's, a, it's a bunny in a hat, you know, because we're hacks. And um, mine is on my ankle and my dad's is on his arm and my mother is still furious like 10 years later. So here we are. You should get her drunk and get her tattooed. And she'll I've be been trying to get a matching tattoo with her for years. Uh, I, I, I have one with my brother. I have one with my dad. I need one with her. Is your is your brother a magician too? No, we just we have another silly matching tattoo. He, my dad, really tried to get him into magic, and he was like, "I he." The problem is, my brother's like, like a good looking normal dude who's just like always had friends, like good at sports. Like he's always had a girlfriend. Like my dad needed to choose 
like the less ambitious child. Like it was not, he, my brother was never going to be a magician. He was not a good candidate. Like he was too popular. Like it's just not, that was never going to work out. So you're saying he fit the stereotype of someone who isn't a magician. Exactly. I need attention and I don't have a lot of skills. So I, the perfect candidate to be a magician. Like I can't sing or dance or act, but I love attention. Uh, uh, Let's talk about the first magic trick you actually learned then. What's, can you remember what that would be? Um, the first magic trick I learned. Oof. I'm not sure. I'm sure it was a very simple card trick. But I will tell you the trick that my dad taught me that I still do now, uh, although I do a different version of it, was, uh, was rope magic, Professor's Nightmare. And my dad does a really wonderful routine. And even though it's probably not the first one I learned, it is the one that stands out most in my mind. Yeah, I'll buy that. And do you I'll- do your version with phone chargers? Yes, I do. I saw that. That's really clever. She took a classic. She made it relatable, folks. We love to see it. Well, it's it's Professor's Nightmare with phone chargers. It must be a video out there because I saw it. So I'll put it into the show notes. There's like 800 videos of me doing it. Well, I'd love when someone takes a classic trick and makes it relatable and real. Uh, Jim and I have a mutual friend named Lloyd Brandt who uh, plays a chicken at Renaissance Festivals. And I told him he's the only one where it has ever made sense for someone on stage to be dealing with an egg bag because it makes perfect sense. Yeah. It's a chicken and it's disappearing. Uh, and your use now of such a modern, uh, something that everybody has or is always looking for. Uh, really, really nice. Really smart. Thank so you. I understand that you and your dad did be performed while you were in high school. Uh, yeah. Was that a one-time thing, or did you have an actual act where you went around to Kiwanis clubs and things like that? It was just it was we did it two years in a row, but it was only at my high school. It was so much fun, and it was such a terrible show. Like it's not good. Like I'm not proud of it. Like I don't look back and think like, wow, what what art that was. But it was so fun, and like I built all the props out of cardboard and. Everyone at my high school came and we like sold tickets to raise money for the art department. And it was just the most, it was the most wholesome thing a teenager can do, I think, is put on a magic show with her dad at the high school. I uh, I got to agree. <laughs> Sorry. What, what were the elements of that act? Um. We, so by the way, it wasn't like we didn't do anything together. We... We would sort of like it was me, my dad, and like one other kid in high school who did magic. And we would, we recreated some like large scale stage illusions out of cardboard. So they were, you know, terrible looking. But then we also did, you know, if, there was rope magic. I'm, I think the other kid did cups and balls at one point. There was a little bit of mentalism. It was a lot. I mean, we were young and cute. I still, I will tell you. The video is buried on YouTube somewhere under like a faked title. So don't try to look for it. But there was one really great comment on it because most of the comments are like, boy, these kids sure are scrappy. I hope they're still doing magic. And one person wrote, Penn and Teller are so much better than them. (laughs) And that comment is burned in my mind forever because I was like, good, that I should hope so. So do I understand that that, your father gave up the the frivolous pastime of being a pediatric cardiologist and is now a full-time magician? So he I don't want to say give up. He did retire like at a retirement age, but he um but yes, he is no longer a physician. He was for, you know, 30 years or however long people do that for. And now he like does magic gigs all the time. He like works at part if you're in Chicago, hire him, please. That's awesome. What to expect? It's just like me, but bald. So <laughs> does he have? Great. Does he have a website? He does. You should look up Doctor David Wax, Doctor Dave Magic, the cure for the common party. I we'll love put, it. Uh, a link in the in the show notes. Absolutely. I'll send you a link when we absolutely. Have it. Now you don't live in Chicago anymore, right? You're now in New York. Yeah. 
You, what? what uh, why'd you decide to uh, leave Chicago? Great town. Moved to New York. Another great town. Another great town. Um, an even filthier town, you might say. So my family's from New York. So we have oh. like family here and like roots. My parents are both from New York. I moved here like 10-ish years ago for college. And I've always felt more at home in New York kind of than I ever did in Chicago. I just feel like New York is the way it's, there's just, there's a place for everybody here, kind of. There's a place to be a weirdo here. So I, I just love it. I don't, I don't know that I would ever, I could really picture myself anywhere else. That's where you found the magnets? Yes. This is, New York is where I found the magnets, which is the wonderful magic group that takes the greatest care of its members. I had not heard of them before. Tell me about yeah, who I had they not are heard and what they at do. All. So yeah, it, fill me in because the magnets yeah. completely new to me. So the magnets is a group of magicians. We meet every single Wednesday in the back of a bar and we shoot the shit and we talk magic and we, we have a Facebook chat thread where anybody can share things or ask questions or do anything anytime. And kind of the point of it, the point, the whole point of the group is that everyone is always welcome, hmm. whatever your level, whatever your, you know, anything, there is no discrimination at the magnets, which is, can be hard to find in magic sometimes. And sometimes it's hard to not feel nervous, but there's, it's, it's very much an egoless group. Whatever your level is, whatever kind of magic you're interested in, you're welcome. And um, it's run by my my dear friend Eli Bosnick, who started it. So you know, to have a very welcoming place in magic for anybody. That reminds me of the uh, the group that would meet every Saturday uh, after stopping at Tannins. Yeah, uh, absolutely. For, you brought that back to life. Yeah, well, Eli did, you know, he really wanted to have like, and sort of a place where like, if somebody moves to the city and they're into magic and they don't know anybody, like they can come and meet some people and maybe be scared away, you know, we're a, we're a frightening bunch. <laughs> I love this. I love, I love that a lot uh, that you have found a place. How did you find it then? Did, was he a friend of yours right out of the gate? So I, it's actually kind of a funny story. I was working at Toys R Us selling magic kits. And one of the other employees who I won't name, um, him and I started dating because he had a lip ring and I was 19. And I was like, what a cool way to piss off my parents. So we started dating and it was, and then he was part of the magnet. So he introduced me to them and then we stopped dating and they picked me, which it was like a whole thing. It was like a lot of drama. But now they're like my best friends and have been for 10 years. So that is how I met the Magnets was through dating a Magnet. Oh, I guess there must have been an attraction there. Hello. <laughs> that one was lying in the ground. I had to pick it up or else someone might have stumbled on it at some point. I walked right by it. I walked uh -huh. right by it. I saw it and I said, I'm not picking that up. Well, it's no, done. It's done. Did you also have improv training early on? I have had no improv training. Really? Because you, your stage presence screams improv. I am very funny. You are yeah. very funny. Lots it's of people funny. are very funny, but you are very funny in the moment and not necessarily pulling something, some hack line out of somewhere. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't have improv training, although I will say I've been very lucky to have a lot of flight time and I sort of use that to try new things. How do you find that in New York? Mark. How do you get that kind of time? So the Magnets used to have a show called Taste of Magic. It's not around anymore, but it was a really great dinner magic show and a good way for people to like get young performers to get flight time. So I had that. And then, you know what? There's like a million little magic shows like here and there in the city. I mean, nowadays I work at, at the Slipper Room and I work at uh, there's... I work mostly I work at Speakeasy Magic at the McKittrick Hotel, but that's close up, not stage, although the performance style that I have is the same. There's also lots of like you can go to like an open mic, like a comedy open mic and do a magic trick there. You know, you sort of have to like find the 
find the opportunities that are not there for money and they're not there for clout. They are there for flight time. Well, that's pretty darn cool because you, you, you are very funny. Uh, and, and I can appreciate that when I watched uh, the videos of you, I was like, wow, she is so in the moment and so able to just bang around with really charming lines that are appropriate and funny. And I, it didn't look like they were, it looked like you were just grabbing out of the air these great yeah, lines. that's really where I have fun, too. That's the other thing. Is like, that's what makes me excited and happy. And I also think that's, like, how you stand out to an audience and how you connect to them in a way that doesn't feel like if they weren't there, your show wouldn't be any different. Is your, like, is your dad funny? Where, do you yes. have a, like, he is, so you have, there. there's a conduit. Very okay he's very funny we have a very similar sense of humor and all of the same mannerisms and voice and face nice okay so that flight time i imagine that's what gave you the confidence to be funny in the context of doing a magic trick because i know many magicians i am not a magician jim is only partially magician but i know you can get so caught up in the mechanics of what you're trying to do and all of that that having that extra level going on of not only am i doing that but i'm actually listening to what you're saying and i'm responding appropriately that's a hard thing to learn isn't it it is yeah for me personally i have to get really comfortable with the mechanics of something before i can switch the other cylinders on in my brain that are doing that improv and doing that quippy humor um so what i'll sort of do is like build in some lines and some moments into a routine while i'm getting comfortable with it and it will just sort of continue to get better and change over time because i'm all my favorite lines i didn't sit down and write they came to me in the moment and then i added them in as a permanent fixture so i definitely try to not do both at once i try to get the mechanics of something really comfortable and then over time add in more and more and more of that improv and quick quippiness and that kind of banter that's a smart way to do it yeah very good very workable very uh it's sadly uh it's uh I don't think something that most, I mean, I think you're, you're, that's a gift, I guess is what I'm saying. It's, it's not something that uh, even a guy or gal who has a lot of experience, if you don't have that sort of natural ability, which you seem to have, it's a tough, that's a tough way to learn. And, and, but it, it is tough. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. In your hands and in watching you on stage. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you, for a while, it was fashion design and then magic. You were kind of doing both, juggling them? Yeah. Is that so, what you went to school for? Yeah. So I went to school for fashion design. I always wanted to be a fashion designer my whole life. That's all I wanted to do. And I did it for a bunch of years. And then magic sort of started to pick up a little bit more and more on the side. And then I started doing speakeasy magic. And there, you know adding more shows, adding more days, adding more this. And it was probably, I would say, two years of really like full out doing both full time. Like I'm never home. I'm changing in a cab between jobs. Like I'm constantly lugging around a giant bag with makeup and a hair curler and magic st stuff all the time and running back and forth. And I just kept being like, something bad is going to happen to my body. <laughs> and like, I kept having that thought and I was like, I am aging at a terrifying pace. Like it was just <laughs> really intense. And my like performance chops definitely grew a lot during that, like, cause I was performing a lot, but my, I wasn't progressing creatively in magic as much because I was like, I don't have the time or the mental bandwidth. So, yeah, quitting fashion was very scary. I probably could have done it sooner than I did. I'd like to say that I was so brave and jumped off that diving board, but I was basically kicked off by my friends kicking and screaming. And it was it was coming from so far away that my bosses were like, oh, sure, of course. Well, I mean, we figured as much. Like, my, <laughs> nobody was upset that I was quitting. They were just like, I mean, we'll miss you, but like, duh. They like I like I've never quit a job where they like gave me a big Starbucks gift card as a farewell gift. 
So most magicians out there who are, let's say, semi-professional, who are making some money out of it, also have day gigs. Having gone through that for two years, do you have any tips for the best way to make it through if you're balancing trying to earn a living but also trying to get gigs? I think every time a gig comes up, like your gut reaction is like, let me do anything to get this gig. Whether it's lower my price or go super far out of my way or do this, that, or the other thing. I think it's important to be like, okay, how is this going to serve me? Because you also, like the biggest thing is if, if you forget to make space to take care of yourself, then everything goes It just does. It all goes And you have to like, let yourself go in some areas. Like for example, when I was working both jobs, like I was making extra money cause I was doing two jobs. So I let myself take an Uber anytime I was tired. I let myself order in food and didn't beat myself up about not getting groceries. And like, you do have to make some concession somewhere, even if it means you're not gonna save as much money or, you know, it feels wasteful or whatever. You have to give something to yourself to take care of yourself because otherwise it's you're not going to be good at either job if you're exhausted and hungry and not feeling satiated that's smart stuff right there because i think too many performers all of us neglect that little piece of advice that there is a certain amount of time that i have to simply be down uh or i yeah. can't be up when i need to be up so. Yeah. And sometimes you have to say no to a gig. Like sometimes you just have to say no. And that's really hard because in any type of freelance work, you're constantly like, you don't know when the next thing is. So you don't want to say no to anything. And that that's really hard. But like, sometimes you have to, like, sometimes it's like, is this really worth it if you're drowning? Yeah, exactly. Can I go back to the fashion design thing just for a second? Yeah. So I know I don't want to give anything away here to anybody who's listening, but sometimes magicians have clothing that uh, would be specific to them and their needs on stage. You have a fashion design background. Have you designed anything for yourself that um, uh, is specific to your act? Um, Sort of. So I, I will often alter clothing. I won't usually make it from scratch just because it's more work than is worth talking about. But I'm I'm a huge blazer hound. I buy new blazers constantly. I just, I love them. And they make me feel, you know, powerful. And But sometimes like the pockets aren't deep enough or there's not enough pockets or there's no pockets and I'll adjust that a lot or I'll add pockets to a skirt or I'll change out the pockets on, I, I do a lot of pocket adjustment. That's just for me though. Like there's some, I know some female magicians who will just like wear a dress and carry a handbag and that works for them. So you kind of got to figure your own stuff out, but that's the main alteration thing that I do for myself. And you've also given us the great title for this episode, Blazer Hound. Blazer Hound. I imagine your first mentor was your father. Did you run into other mentors on, on your way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would think of as, I would think of, Eli as a huge mentor for me. I mean, not just in like technical magic, but as as a comedy person. Um, he's a comedy writer and he's a he's a podcaster. And you know, he sort of helped me fine tune my performance character over time. You know, because as a woman, it's like it's very delicate. It's very dicey. It, oh, you can't be too mean. Oh, you can't be too flirty. Oh, can't be too... Blah, blah, blah. There's a million things that sort of don't translate. Like, I have male friends who are like, oh, next time someone says this, like, why don't you just say X, Y, Z? And I'm like, think about how that sounds coming out of my mouth. Yeah. And it's very delicate and it's very tricky and I'm constantly changing and constantly evolving and adjusting. But he has always been a huge help with that. And this is the guy who started the magnets, Eli. Yes. All right. As so, opposed to Eli Marks, the magician in the in the yeah. nine book Eli Marks series that this podcast yeah. is about. Although many of the things you said about your Eli are also true yeah. of our Eli. Yeah, exactly. And I will also say, as far as mentorship, everybody I work with at Speakeasy 
I would consider a mentor just because they're all like so talented, so knowledgeable, so happy to share information and help. I could go to any of them anytime and say like, Hey, can you look at this? And they not only treat me as an equal, but it's never a, Oh, that's good enough. No, it make it better. They always help make it better. So I, I consider a lot of people mentors, I guess. Tell us well, more about the speakeasy experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about that. I'm very curious about it. Yeah, so it's the show's been around, I think, like five years. It's put on by the McKittrick Hotel. And I I can only give so much away, but it's a it is a very cool immersive experience. If you don't know the McKittrick Hotel, that's the home of Sleep No More, which is like the immersive show. But Speakeasy is sort of like, it's a mix of close-up magic. It's a mix of stage. It's a cool vibe. It's some of the best magic you'll see ever. And you're seeing multiple magicians. So you get to see very different styles of magic, different personalities, different magic with different objects, all, all different kinds of stuff. And it's very, um, it's very cool. It's, it's a lot of magic packed into an hour and 45 minutes. Is it a... How do I phrase what I'm trying to say? So it's not, is it a show? You come, you buy a ticket, you sit down, yes. you watch a yes. show. Yes. It is. All right. Yeah. It is yeah. a show that you attend. Yeah. Rather than, I, I guess, it, you know, I think of the term speakeasy more as kind of a bar and you go to the bar and you're drinking and a magician shows up to. Oh, sure. Yeah. You. We yeah. sort of create that vibe while keeping it a ticketed show. Like they ah. do. They do maintain that vibe. If you know anything about the McKittrick Hotel is, is that they know how to create a vibe and an experience. And they very much maintain the speakeasy experience. But it's not like Sleep No More where you're moving through the hotel. No, you're just, no, no, no. You're in one place and you're, you settle you down. One, you are in one place. We come to you. Okay. All right. Well, I think the road trip is uh, in our future, Jim. I'll, yeah. uh, I'll drive, John. I'll drive yeah. or we'll fly. I don't care how we get there as long as we okay, get there. Flying isn't a road trip. That's a sky trip. Sky trip. You're, uh, I don't care how we get there. I'll take a train. You can ride on the, I'll give you a buck on the back of my bike, but we got to get to this. This is you gotta get to so this. cool. Yeah. yeah. Who's the host of that show? Are you? The host is Todd Robbins. Holy crap. He's yeah. incredible. He is a legend. He is a sideshow and magic legend. And yeah. he really sets the tone for the show. I think he and Teller did a show together, didn't they? Yes. They had a show, Play Dead, a bunch of Play years Dead, ago. Which I really would love to have seen and didn't. Yeah. But he's the host and very much the the ringleader, I would say. Very nice. That's a that's a good ringleader. Yes, very much so. Good for you. Well, good speaking you. of speaking of Teller. Uh, the first time I saw you was on uh, Penn and Teller Fool Us. Uh, we've had many of our friends appear on there, from Suzanne to uh, David Parr, Morgan and West, our best magician pals. It looked like you had a great time. Was it a great time? It was a great time. I filmed on my birthday. Uh-huh. So that was wonderful. It was like a very smooth experience. Like I had a lot of anxiety going into it obviously and i was very nervous but they run such a tight ship there and like the whole experience was lovely like i felt very taken care of i felt really happy with how the edit came like how the whole thing came out at the end like penn and teller were both delightful i got to be like a little bitchy at the end which is just like my vibe and it was great like i like i can't say enough good things except that i had terrible anxiety the whole time i did have an awful experience going home which yeah. is like a fun story if if you'd like to hear it as um, long as it ends well i mean like i'm here so i guess it's fine okay um, good <laughs> so i was like i was really it was a lot of adrenaline because it was my birthday it was this which i Hey, this is John, just stopping the uh, podcast for just a second here. Rachel's about to tell a story about flying home after doing Penn and Teller's Fool Us. Great story, funny story. However, in order to include it in the podcast, I would have to do so much beeping that it would just be about a two and a half minute tone. And so I cut it out. It's its own separate little video on our YouTube page. Behind the page, the Eli Marks podcast YouTube page. 
On the YouTube page, I can indicate something's of an adult nature, and it's not a problem. If I leave into the podcast here, then I've got to say the whole podcast is explicit, and that's not what we want to do here. So, if you want to hear her story, which I recommend, go over to our YouTube page, listen to it there, you'll find a link in the show notes. Otherwise, let's get back to Rachel talking more about her Fool Us experience. The routine was great. You said you'd worked on it for quite a while. Was that the only thing you offered them or did you give them some different stuff and and I offered them one other routine and they wanted this one and it changed a lot in without giving anything away can you kind of just highlight what changed wait or- can I ask you can I ask a, I want to know if it if if the routine changed once you got to Vegas and started working with the Foolis crew or if it changed where when when did it change so that routine started as Bill to Lemon which is like a classic. And then I spoke to Jamie Ian Swiss and God bless his soul. I was like, can you watch this video of me? And he was like, hey, you're doing a really bad version of that trick and you're not doing it well. And I was like, sick, tight, thank you. (laughs) So I changed it to be card to cliff, like it changed from cards to money to this to that. There was a torn corner, then it was a serial number, then it was a signature, like, It went through so many iterations. The actual method I used came out during the time where you're, you don't go to Vegas to work on it with them, but you sort of have like Zoom calls with them. Many, many Zoom calls with, you know, the producers. You know what? That's the first time anybody has ever said that to me. Uh, uh, John, do you remember any of the other uh, Foolish conversations? Yes. Yes, not only that, but my close I believe when we talked to Mike Close, he was about to uh, go. He had to do a, a Zoom call about someone tweaking the yeah. routine. Oh, I did not. I thought he was just talking to the people at Foolis. I did no. not know that they helped you along the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They want to make sure that like, because also they'll change. They'll help. Like, they'll say, I don't think that line's going to play. They also, they know everyone who's been on it. So they can go, oh, you know what? We had a guy say that once and it wasn't that funny. Or they can help adjust it. That is a new level. Uh, and uh, I don't know if the listeners are as surprised as I am, uh, but that's a new level. I did not know that they were that involved along the process. I thought that yeah. kind of stuff happened once you arrived. Oh, no. Oh, my God. It's like months, months of I, I was very much not going in with the intent to fool them. I think a lot of people talk themselves into thinking they're going to fool them and are really disappointed after and that that's a bummer i mean it's awesome if you can fool them but like it's not why i went on the show like i went on the show to like to showcase myself as a performer and have a good segment and you know do it because it's an awesome thing to do but like i wasn't kidding myself like i wasn't like i bet this will really get them (laughs) well the routine is spectacular and pen pen at the end of it nailed it as far as i was concerned you were in every way, uh, charming, funny, magical, mysterious. I mean, it was just great. And that'll be in the show notes too, won't it, John? We will have a link to that in the show notes. I recommend you watch that. Yeah. It's It's really, really, really fabulous. Yeah. So you've pretty much grown up in magic. We, we, you know, we have two different kinds of magicians on this show. We have the ones who get the magic kid at age eight, or in your case, have a father who trains them in. And then we have the ones, the Rob Zabreckis of the world, who stumble into it later. You've seen uh, a lot of magic in in your short life so far. Well, how do you think the world of magic has changed uh, since you've been aware of being in it? Let me talk about how I think it's changed for women. I feel like there are more and more and more women in magic. And even though it can still be a kind of hostile place to be a woman, I do think it's going in the right direction. And I taught at Tannen's magic camp this last summer, which was so wonderful and such an honor. And there were so many girls and everyone was so lovely. And these kids were just like, nice all the kids were really kind and really lovely to each other and like it made me feel really good about the future of magic because I think something that happens in the community that I hope will change and I think is changing is sort of not even gatekeeping but 
kind of not letting certain people in or feeling like, oh, I'm cool or I'm too cool or what. And it's like, we're all magicians, like relax. I didn't see that at all at camp. And you know, you have these huge heavy hitters at Tannen's camp, like David Williamson is there and he's just there chit-chatting with any child who wants to talk to him. Like I'm standing there like, oh my God, it's David Williamson. And these kids can just go up to him and talk to him. And he's lovely and just chatting with, any child who needs help with anything. And like, mm-hmm. I think that sets a really great tone for magic going forward. We love David Williamson. Yeah, we do. I'm obsessed with him. Also, he's a pug person. Oh, and I brought oh. my pug to camp and they bonded very deeply. Nice. Very nice. So one last question for you. What excites you about magic today? as Either the world of magic or for yourself as a magician? I would say the world of magic excites me because I think that I don't want to say that social media and the internet is necessarily good for magicians, but I do think it's good for sharing magic and it makes it really easy to share new magic, which I think is great because even if you see something and it's too hard for you to do, or you don't want to, or it doesn't fit your character, it might get your juices flowing. It might get your brain gears turning and make you want to, work on something new or check something out. And I, I do think that like how much magic is online is there's, pro- it's probably a net positive for the community and making magic a little bit more widespread. There's also so many magic shows right now in person. And I think that's awesome because seeing people still being excited to go out and see live entertainment is awesome. As far as magic for myself, I am very excited for projects that I'm working on. And I am excited to sort of explore other parts of myself as a performer. Part of the fun of magic, I think, is that there is sort of an endless amount of it to learn. So it's kind of hard to get bored because there's always something you don't know, or there's always something you can get better at. It's, it's kind of an endless thing, which is daunting at times, but it's kind of nice that I can like go to one of my buddies at Speakeasy and be like, hey, I want to learn a new type of card control. Like, can you recommend something to me? And they can go, yeah, here's this book, this book, this book, and I'll send you a video on it. And it's just, it's fun. It's fun to work on stuff. It's fun to try new things. It's fun to work on new things. And like every time you perform, you're sharing art, which is cool. And that's just a wonderful part of the job. What a great story. What a fun person. The evolution she's made from part-time magician working with her dad, not really working, but learning from her dad, and then uh, going to design school and then balancing the two of those things. Uh, and then uh, her her sort of mantra uh, of, uh, I do want to bring the life to the party, uh, which uh, there's clips in the show notes of her performing. You'll see that that's exactly what Rachel does. Yeah, she she has so much on the ball, so much going, so many natural gifts uh, that that I really want to see her perform in Speakeasy. Again, I am tempted to get off the couch right now and start driving. I'll pick you up. If it weren't for your natural inertia, I'd be afraid of that. Exactly. But I, I re- we really do have to make the commitment, John, and get out there and see Speakeasy. There's so there's so much there for me. I, well, that, if we're to do that, Jim, then we got to drive, and then we got to go through Chicago and see Chicago magic. And we absolutely do. It's a uh, we're we're gonna barnstorm this great country of ours, ladies and gentlemen. Stay tuned for more updates as we get in the car and start driving across the country. First to Chicago, then to New York, and then all the way to L.A. Because I've I've got to see the Houdini seance with Rob Zabrecki. Yes, so glad we got to touch on that last episode. Some nice comments came in on that. Still getting nice comments on George Campbell, uh, episode one of season four. As well Uh, we should. He was terrific. And you know what? Rachel said something that made me think, oh, that's similar to, how can I get better at, that was, there's always something you don't know that you can get better at. Yeah. which reminded me of George's, you know, I've got a limited supply of old stuff, but an unlimited supply of new stuff. So uh, the smart people are telling us something that I absolutely have to take to heart. Yeah, it's a it's a paradigm shift, as they say, in your thinking. 
to look at your material that way as having an unlimited supply in the future uh, and, and not feeling like you're saddled with what you already have. Uh, another thing I thought was really fun that came out of that interview was her comment about learning to say no and taking care of yourself, not running yourself into the ground because you think it's the only way to be successful. It's a really difficult thing as a freelancer myself. That's a really difficult lesson to learn. And, I, and every time I think I've learned it, I, I fail. Uh, it is so hard to say no to someone offering you work because as Rachel said, you just never know. This, yeah. this could be the last offer I'm going to get ever. Yeah. So uh, it it is a hard lesson to learn, but so important. Uh, and she's dead on. And, and I, you know, I like the little ways, you know, I'm not going to beat myself up for ordering food. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, you know, those kinds of little things that you can do. Terrific. To take care of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Makes perfect yeah. sense. If we uh, titled these episodes, I, I think I mentioned in the interview, we'd call it Blazer Hound. Uh, and if you go through some of the links uh, we have of Rachel, you'll see the different blazers that, that she wears. And speaking of going through the links, there is a link in the show notes, as I mentioned in the interview when I did that little meta thing stepping out. We do have the bonus video of uh, Rachel Flies Home from Foolis and the story that she tells there. Hysterical. She's leading us in a brand new direction. Yeah, we're just going to we're working blue from now on. Exactly. Uh, okay, I am ready to read. Um, we're up to chapter three of The Miser's Dream, everybody. John, any chance you'd be willing to just recap for me and everybody, really, what happened in chapter two? Sure. Well, in chapter two, the police got to work uh, getting into the projection booth where the body that Eli saw was uh, homicide detective Fred Hutton arrives. We meet uh, Tracy, who's the theater manager, and Eli realizes there's a big old envelope of cash in the booth. Chapter 3 $75,000? Harry gave a low whistle as he stroked his thick white beard. That's what the crime scene guy said. I saw a stack of money in an envelope on the table, but I was surprised it was so much. Must have been large denomination bills. Must have been. My, you had quite the evening last night, didn't you? My Uncle Harry and I were having breakfast together in his apartment, as we did most mornings. However, our topics of conversation usually focused on more mundane things, like a new type of rye bread he was thinking of trying, or the need to order more invisible thread for the magic shop. Dead bodies and large sums of cash were, at least up until today, infrequent but welcome breakfast subjects. The daily breakfast ritual began soon after I moved back into my apartment above Harry's. At the time, I had just gotten divorced and my Aunt Alice had recently died. It made sense to return to my boyhood home, if only for a while. Harry seemed to like the company at breakfast, and it gave us an important and valuable opportunity to strategize on ways to upgrade and improve his magic store and its standing in the marketplace. I should point out we never seized that opportunity. Not even once, but instead, usually spent the time just reading the paper or kibitzing on topics both obscure and unimportant. It sounds like the police have a classic locked room mystery on their hands, Harry said as he headed to the coffee maker to pour his second cup of the day. He filled the mug to the halfway mark and then added a generous amount of chocolate milk to round out the rest of the cup. Dead body on the floor, gun nearby, a stack of money on the table, and the door locked from the inside. Yes, quite the puzzler. Did you know the projectionist? I think his name was Tyler. Harry sat down and considered. We're on a nodding acquaintance, I would say, he finally said. I know he's worked there for years, but I, I couldn't tell you a thing about the poor devil. You? I shook my head. I don't think I could have picked him out of a crowd, I said. Say, speaking of crowds and on a more upbeat note, how was the turnout for Quentin Moon's show last night? I shrugged. Good, I suppose. I didn't see any empty seats, but it's hard to tell how many more that room could have held, I said, trying to sound as nonchalant as I could. 
Marvelous show, isn't it? Harry continued, stirring his coffee so the dark brown liquid transitioned into a milky gray. Didn't you love it? I shrugged again and picked up my toast. Harry leaned across the table. Are you saying that was not one of the finest magic shows you have ever seen in your entire life? He said, his voice rising to an incredulous pitch. Are you seriously saying that? How can you be saying that? I'm not actually saying anything, I snapped. But you're talking so much you can't tell. Harry leaned back in his chair and studied me closely. Do I sense a visit by the green-eyed monster Envy, he said quietly. Is that who has landed at our breakfast table this morning? No, I lied. I thought he was fine. Nice show, very nice show. Nice. Can you damn him with any fainter praise than nice? I don't know what the big deal is, I sputtered. It was a good show, very competent. The audience loved it. What do you want me to say? Nothing, Harry said quietly. You've already said volumes. Mercifully, my phone chose that moment to beat, signaling the arrival of a text. I pulled it out and gave it a quick look. It's my agent. She has work for me. I should go call her. By all means, Harry said. Leave your dishes. I'll straighten up. You go call your agent about your work. He spit out the last three words with a biting precision and then got up and began to clear the table. I took my phone and headed to the door, happy to have an excuse to leave. Even though I stormed out of Harry's apartment trying to give the impression I had places to go and things to do, as it turned out, I did have at least one place to go. A quick call to my agent revealed the sudden and abrupt need for a substitute magician at a children's magic show. The details were fuzzy, but apparently the scheduled performer had backed out at the last minute, leaving a frantic parent with a room full of kids and no promised and desperately needed child-friendly entertainment. I'm no fan of children's magic shows because in my hands, they generally end up being less about entertainment and more about crowd control. Some magicians can handle the kids with ease and aplomb. For me, it quickly degenerates into a hostage situation with me as the unwilling victim. However, I wanted to put some distance between myself and Harry, and I really did have nothing else to do that morning. I packed the car and was on the road in less than 20 minutes. Due to the hurried nature of the request, my agent had failed to supply me with the demographic profile of the group. Not knowing the age range of the audience meant I had to bring not just a few things, but virtually everything. I needed to be prepared for any contingency because experience had taught me a trick that will delight an eight-year-old will completely baffle a five-year-old, sometimes to the point of tears. And then a trick a five-year-old finds completely enthralling, a ten-year-old will think is the stupidest thing he's ever seen and will be quick to proclaim that, often at great volume. And God help you if the room is full of teenagers. Consequently, I had overpacked and was ready, I felt, for any eventuality. I was wrong. I would have been wise to spend the drive time thinking about what I was going to do for my 45-minute act, which was 25 minutes away. Instead, I spent the trip fuming about how quickly Harry had seen through my feelings about Quentin Moon's performance. The fact was, it was the most astonishing magic show I had ever seen. But something inside made it impossible for me to admit that, at least in front of Harry. Because this flurry of negative thoughts and self-doubt had clouded my brain, I think I could be excused for not noticing the red flags of danger as they appeared one right after another. The first indicator something was amiss was the complete lack of cars in the parking lot at the party's location, Pirate Pete's Pizza Peninsula. With a kid's birthday party in progress, the lot normally would have been filled to overflowing with SUVs and minivans, but there were only a handful of cars dotting the large space. I encountered the second red flag when I entered the building, passing a prominent and hastily scrawled closed for private events sign which hung crookedly on the door. What was striking was the volume 
or actually lack of volume, that I experienced when I walked into the entertainment complex. Pirate Pete's consists of a ridiculously large video game arcade, a bowling alley, indoor putt-putt, a performance stage, and outsized dining area. Noise levels, including the sound effects from all the video games, the rumble from the bowling alley, the screaming of kids, and constant thumping of bass-heavy music usually combine to create a wall of sound as you walk into the place. However, on this day, I was greeted by blessed, eerie silence. The third red flag was actually more of a red fire hydrant, a short, muscled bullet of a man I'd come to know only as Harpo. With his short-cropped red hair and imposing stance, he was the first human, to use the term loosely, I encountered as I entered the building. My heart sank when I saw him, because the appearance of Harpo was a clear harbinger I was once again going to come face to face with. Ah, there he is, the man of the hour. Welcome, Mandrake, welcome. I followed the sound of the thin, reedy voice, finally spotting its thinner, reedier owner. Mr. Lime was seated on a chair in the large and empty dining area, looking like a pale, skeletal waif set adrift in a sea of colorful tables. I forced a smile onto my face and headed toward him, fording the large sandbox area which acted as a moat of sorts between the play zone and the food area. If I had been crossing an authentic moat to do battle with an actual dragon, I think I would have felt better about my odds. Welcome to my version of a surprise party, he said with a too-wide smile, making his tight white skin seem even tighter and whiter. The surprise being there is no party? Exactly. He gestured to a chair across the table from him, and I sat reluctantly like a child forced into an impromptu meeting in the principal's office, assuming, of course, the principal was a grinning, aging sociopath. Our paths had crossed three times earlier that year, and I still knew nothing about the man, not even his real name. In addition to his criminal activities, which he only alluded to, he was a rabid movie fan. At our first meeting, he proposed the name Harry Lime as a plausible substitute for the real thing. The charming but immoral Orson Welles character from The Third Man had seemed a reasonable analog, and from that point on, he'd become Mr. Lime in all of our brief but terrifying encounters. His delight in assigning movie nicknames was applied without prejudice to all comers. His silent bodyguard, houseboy, chauffeur, or whatever the hell he was, had been given the name Harpo as a nod to the great silent comedian. And I was dubbed Mandrake in honor of the comic strip magician of the same name. I'm glad your schedule was free this morning, Mr. Lime said. Can Harpo get you a soft drink of some kind? They have one of those machines which appear to offer hundreds of selections. I myself, he continued, gesturing to the bright plastic cup in front of him, am happily partaking of a diet vanilla cherry coke of all things. To prove his point, he picked up the cup and took a sip from the colorful straw. His skin was so translucent, I swear I could see the dark liquid through his cheeks as it moved out of the straw and into his mouth. He looked just as old as he had when I met him several months back, and that was really, really old. Thin strands of white hair covered his pale scalp, and his head balanced atop his wiry shoulders like a ghoulish bobblehead. This is a unique place to meet, I said by way of a conversational icebreaker. Thank you, thank you, he said, taking the comment more as a compliment than intended. I thought a birthday party would be a good ruse, and this seemed as likely a place as any. In fact, I think, technically, I own this establishment, he added as he looked around the large space as if for the first time. But I suspect... That would be very hard to prove. By design? Exactly. Feeling more cocky than I had any right to, I pressed the question. 
Mr. Lime, what exactly do you do? I mean, for a living? We've never discussed that. I'm not sure I understand the question, he said without a hint of sarcasm. His apparent naivete stumped me for a second. All right, I said, searching for another way into my query. For example, when you fill out your income tax form, what do you list as an occupation? This produced a gruesomely large smile, during which he bared all of his large yellow teeth. Income tax form. You are a funny young man, Mandrake. You really are. He laughed a ragged, phlegmy laugh and then took another long sip from his soda cup. The straw made a slurping sound as it sucked up the remaining liquid, and in an instant, Harpo was at his side, replacing the empty cup with a full one and then disappearing as quickly as he had appeared. Mr. Lime seemed to take no notice of any of this and focused his attention entirely on me. I understand you had a bit of an occurrence last night, he began. For a brief instant, I thought he too was going to launch into a lecture about what a freaking great magician Quentin Moon was. But then I realized he was referring to the murder at the movie theater. Oddly enough, that felt like a much more comfortable conversation topic. I suppose I did, I said. It's not every day you look out your window and see a dead body. For some reason, this produced another slight smile on Mr. Lime's thin lips. No, I imagine for you, that is a rare incident, but as you've doubtless assumed, that's what I've brought you here today to discuss, if you don't mind. Never in the complete history of time has a question been more rhetorical. Sure, I said while nodding agreeably. It's your party. Yes. I suppose it is. He took another sip of his diet vanilla cherry Coke. Walk me through what happened, what you saw, what you did, what you said. He gestured expansively with one hand while gripping the soda cup with the other. I sat back in my chair and began. Just as I had done with Harry an hour before, I recounted the key moments of the previous evening, discovering the body, calling the police, watching them break into the projection booth, and the tableau they found when the door was finally removed. When I finished, Mr. Lime looked off into a corner of the room and smiled thoughtfully. He clucked his tongue. It looks as if our friend the projectionist got himself into a bit of a situation. Did you know, Tyler? I wasn't sure if the floor was open for questions, but Mr. Lime turned and once again smiled his toothy death mask at me. We had an oblique connection, yes, he said. But I should point out, while I have no actual correlation to the man's death, I do have an interest in it. Let's call it something more than curiosity. He leaned toward me, resting his weight on his arms as they rested on the table. I couldn't see his limbs through his black suit coat, but if they were as bony and frail as the rest of him, I worried for a moment his arms might give way under the strain. There were two film canisters on the floor? Yes, I said. Open? I nodded. Open and apparently empty. Tell me again what was written on them. Each had a white label stuck on it, I said carefully. With handwriting on each of them, one was labeled LAM number one, and the other was labeled L.A.M. number two. He looked at me for a long moment and then leaned back in his chair. He picked up his cup and took another long, thoughtful slurp through the straw. That is fascinating, he said, his voice just above a whisper. So very fascinating. He didn't seem poised to share why it was so fascinating, and I decided not to pursue it. I was weighing my next question, but before I could present it, he snapped out of his reverie. Okay, Mandrake, let's do this. Why don't you do me a trick, and then I'll lay out my plan, such as it is. I was startled by his sudden change in mood and energy. Do a trick? I repeated. He nodded with enthusiasm. 
Yes, I believe it is traditional for magicians at birthday parties to perform tricks. That is still the custom, am I right? I couldn't help but agree, but the sudden request put me momentarily on the spot. I had left all my gear in the car, planning to come in and determine the age range I was dealing with first. Consequently, I had nothing on me I could use for an impromptu trick. At the same time, I knew in my gut if I went out to the car now, my fight-or-flight impulse would switch to flight and I'd be halfway to Canada before I knew it. And as I looked across the table at Mr. Lime, I recognized there was no way that could end well for me. He was as deadly as he was old, if that makes any sense. I quickly surveyed the space to see what was available and was thrilled to spot several small tin buckets in the sandbox moat which circled the eating area. One of those would be perfect for a quick rendition of the miser's dream. Plus, having just seen Quentin Moon perform an exquisite version of the effect last night, I realized this would be an ideal opportunity to see if I could emulate his approach to the trick on the fly. I walked over and grabbed one of the cleaner buckets, stopped by the change machine to get some coins, and headed back to Mr. Lime, who was leaning forward in keen anticipation. Say what you will about him, the scary old guy was a great audience for magic. Many magicians performed the miser's dream to music, but Quentin had done it in complete silence, which only intensified the magic. Currently, the only sound in the room was coming from the refrigeration units behind the counter and a slight persistent wheezing from Mr. Lime. I began the routine as I remembered Quentin doing it, reaching up into the empty space in front of me and attempting again and again to pull a coin out of the air. On the third try, it appeared between my fingers and I held the coin over the bucket, letting it drop with a resounding clink on the bottom. While there are countless variations on it, the basic premise for the miser's dream is just what I demonstrated. Pulling coins out of thin air or from behind someone's ear or out of their nose and dropping these coins one after another into a tin bucket or other similar container. The bucket fills up magically with all these coins just as a miser might dream. And then at the end, you reveal... You can go a lot of different ways at that point. In most versions, you do a final move of some kind and call it a day. But Quentin created a different and striking ending. He poured out all the coins, scooped them into his hands, and immediately poured them back into the bucket. Then, with a final flourish, he turned the bucket over, and only one coin tumbled out. He picked it up and held it up in the air. A moment later, it vanished, leaving him exactly in the same position in which he started. Quentin's rendition was truly a thing of beauty and as dramatic a piece of magic as I had ever seen. Since I was familiar with all the moves he made, with the notable exception of the disappearance of all the coins at the end, about which I didn't have a clue, it felt like a simple process of recreating each of the steps and in so doing, recreating the routine. Simple, in theory, but the further I got into the routine the more I realized there was clearly something missing. I was successfully completing all the steps in the same sequence he had performed them, but something felt imperceptibly off. I plowed ahead gamely, but when I noticed Mr. Lime suppress a yawn, I felt the routine nearly collapse around me. I made it through the conclusion and improvised a quick ending, producing an oversized coin from behind his ear. A hoary cliché, but it was all I could think of. I stood back and waited for his applause. And I waited. The room was deathly silent, with only the sound coming from the compressors in the kitchen. Mr. Lime had stopped his gentle wheezing, and before I glanced over at him, I wished as deeply as I could that he had left at some point during the routine. Sadly, he was still seated across from me, 
and he looked no happier than I felt. So, he said finally, after I had set the bucket down on the table, that happened. Sorry you didn't enjoy it. He shrugged ineffectually. Perhaps it's my age. Do children appreciate that trick? Some do, I said. Children are notoriously harsh critics. Yes, so I've heard. One of the myriads of reasons I never had any. He moved the bucket aside on the table and gestured for me to sit again. Mandrake, about the murder of our projectionist friend, he said, his voice taking on a tone just above a whisper. I believe I have some information, an insight which might be of value to the law enforcement community. If I may bend your ear for just a few more minutes, I will share with you an offer I would like you to extend to them. Oh boy, Mr. Lime, your least favorite voice to do. Well, it's uh, it, only because I made a I made a bonehead choice. It's not uh yeah. I don't blame you. I don't blame Mr. Lime. I blame myself. Uh, I I reached too deeply there, and um, it's a tough voice to sustain. And as we found in recording the book, it's a tough voice to uh, to do and then continue because uh, it really does uh, trash my throat a little bit. Yes, and this is just book uh, three, The Miser's Dream. I know he pops up again and again a couple more times. And then, spoiler alert, he stops popping up at one point. So, But that's, that's a story fun. in and of itself. Exactly. So I hope everybody's liking this new format of having a full interview, uh, one episode a month and the second episode uh, doing a little flashback to something somebody said a couple of years ago and doing a little deeper dive on that. We did Rob Zabrecki last time. We love Rob Zarecki so much. You really uh, do. I'm someone we love. I'm going to say maybe even a little bit more. Just oh, my gosh. Longer. Uh, we're going to have a few words from John Carney that we're going to talk about. So next time we'll do chapter four of The Miser's Dream and then a couple words from John Carney. So uh, until then, keep your dogs quiet, everybody. I think that's good advice straight across the board. Uh, thanks for listening. We really do appreciate it. Next week, John Carney, we love him. We really do. See you later, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.